Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning into this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Ben Cohen. He's a sports writer for the Wall Street Journal. He writes about the NBA, the Olympics, and other topics that don't involve extraordinarily athletic people. He lives in New York with his wife and their cat. His first book is The Hot Hand, which we discussed today, and we had a great conversation about it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. I give you Ben Cohen. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, what's a strange, strange thing in the world of podcasting is the idea from you for you being on the show came from another Ben Cohen, Benjamin <laughs> uh, Cohen, who is a, a good friend of mine, a uh, friend of un- the Unorthodox podcast, which your wife is one of the co-hosts of. And um, he was like, you should have this guy on for his book, The Hot Hand. And so reading your book took me back to some of my great memories of um Saturday splurges. A buddy of mine who was two years older than me, he had a Saturday morning splurge. If he did really well his paper route, he would let a couple of friends go to 7-Eleven and get soft pretzels and play NBA jams. <laughs> and I mean, this was like the highlight of my week. If I could get on the Saturday morning splurge, it was the most exciting thing uh, alive. I mean, that video game was... was um, transformative for my adolescent conscious. <laughs> Wait, so but this was dependent on the success of his paper route? Yeah, 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 yeah. He he could only do it if he got really good tips and stuff. So he would, and you know, he'd let us kind of hang out with him and buy us soft. He would buy us like soft pretzels and give us quarters, and we would play. And the the it's funny because you talk about in your book the hot hand this whole thing where. If you're like Steph Curry and you hit one j- shot, two shots, and then he's on fire. I remember. I, I mean, you narrate how um, the guy who um, who actually came up with this at Midway Games like got the person, got some comedian to read these things. And as I'm reading your book, I'm like, oh my gosh! Like this is taking me back to some of my most pleasant memories in the midst of a pandemic. And you yourself had some experience with a hot hand. You had it once, right? I did, yeah. I mean, I I, I had it uh, when I was a terrible basketball player. Um, I think we all have these experiences with the hot hand. It's sort of this universal phenomenon. That was one of the reasons I was drawn to write this book is because we are familiar with the hot hand. We have felt it and we have seen it for ourselves. But what I've also found is that um, you know a lot of people have that experience with the hot hand playing NBA jam. Like it wasn't just you who played it. It wasn't just me who played it. It was all of us. I mean, this was one of the most successful, lucrative arcade games ever made. And so, um, you know, that, that, that idea of the Saturday splurge, I think maybe the soft pretzels and the, the paper roots were unique to you, but I think there were kids around the world playing NBA jam on Saturday with their friends and learning what this concept of the hot hand was. Yeah, and it's interesting because I mean, so you had this, you know, you're you're not a celebrated basketball player. You wind up becoming a sports writer. I mean, this is um this is um Jewish JV basketball player becomes sports writer is an uncommon I'm sure it's an, an Yeah, nobody's uh, ever done that before. Yeah. <laughs> 
but you talk about how like this Steph Curry. I mean, it, 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 part of the thing that's so interesting about the book you it, that you wrote is that like it almost killed his desire for basketball like he basically you know he's a short guy his dad figures out like you're never going to make it because you're short and so he spends a summer learning how to shoot again uh which i just can't imagine i mean like you that seems to me like the existential kind of emotional pain and work that that takes is something you're pretty good at you start over and to rebuild something from scratch. And he becomes one of the top scorers, you know, in basketball. I mean, he, he becomes this phenomenal basketball player through, you know, the hot hand, through hitting three pointers and, and, and the ability to like one hot hand game where he scores 52, which changes his whole life. I mean, this is utterly remarkable. Well, it's really one of the most remarkable things about his career is how many people were wrong about him for so long. Like at almost every level of the game, people were wrong about Steph Curry and uh, and and sort of short sighted his um, abilities and 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 didn't really give him um, the credit that he deserved and couldn't see the player that he was going to become. And so out of high school, he barely gets a college scholarship, right? And out of college, like he's the seventh pick in the draft, but there are lots of doubts about who he is going to be in the NBA and whether his skill set translates to the NBA. And even after his first few years in the NBA, he was a good player, but he wasn't great or anything. And so that summer uh, between his sophomore and junior years of high school um, turned out to be really instructive. Um, And I think it probably taught him something that came in handy for the rest of his career, which is that like he was he was the best shooter on his team, right? But he was always the shortest guy on his team. And so um, he was never able to take advantage of that weapon in the way that he could. And really what this one game in Madison Square Garden, um, the hottest game of his career showed was that um, his weapon had never really been valued properly. Um, I, in the book, I sort of describe it as, um, a slingshot, right? That's, that's sort of how it had always been seen the ability to shoot. Three pointer <laughs> yeah, yeah, as yeah. Well as you, and you say, use it like a bazooka, <laughs> which is what he that. does now. I mean, the whole point, the through line of Steph Curry's career was that he had never been able to shoot as much as it probably made sense to let him shoot. And that changed on that one February night, uh, against the New York Knicks in Madison Square Garden. And one of the wildest things about that game um, is that nobody would have seen it coming, least of all Steph Curry. Like the night before, the Golden State Warriors get in a fight in Indiana. Um, some of his teammates are suspended. Instead, Steph Curry is fined $35,000 for his role in this fight. And, you know, never has anyone been so lucky to lose so much money because, you know, when they get to the garden that day, uh, his teammates are suspended. The Warriors really have no choice but to unleash him. And and he literally plays the whole game. He plays 48 minutes. He doesn't come out uh, even for a single second. Now, even getting to the arena was a problem that day. So um, in the book, I tell this story about how Steph Curry always takes the second bus from the Warriors team hotel. And on this one day, for some reason he can't remember, he misses the second bus and he has to take the third bus instead. And what happens when the third bus pulls out of the Warriors team hotel? It gets pulled over by New York City traffic cops on the way to Madison Square Garden. So now he is late. Uh, he's rushing his warm-up routine. He's down $35,000. And then he goes out and has the best shooting night of his career. And it's a game that changes his life and it changes the fate of the Golden State Warriors. And in many ways, it changes the future of the entire NBA. And if you had asked him right before tip, is this going to be a good game, let alone the best game of your career, he probably would have said, 
no, I mean, this has been a terrible day, a terrible 24 hours. Like, why would I ever expect that I'm about to get hot right now? Do you know him, Steph Curry? I mean, have you ever met him? Oh, yeah. I mean, I talked to him for this book. I've, I've, I've written about the, the NBA for the Wall Street Journal for like the last five or six years now. And so um, that was really the time that he came into his own. And so I've spent more time thinking and uh, writing uh, and being around the Golden State Warriors than any other team. What is he? I mean, it's interesting because I'm wondering, like, as a journalist, like, with the whole hot hand thing and, and the midway game sort of thing, and he's kind of this, you know, phenomena. Like, do you, I mean, are you, do you help him interpret himself? I mean, it, like, are there things that you see in him that he's like, oh, wow, this is interesting? Like, you're telling my story. It's an interesting question. I mean, I he's th- there is no one on earth who I've written about more than Steph Curry, and yet I, we don't really have a relationship or anything. I, I think it's a lot. I think it's really hard for people to um, understand their place in the world and what makes them so interesting and their value. And um, I find it endlessly interesting to write about Steph Curry. I feel like he is representative of these huge changes in sports. Um, and you know, I have written about everything from, um, his shooting percentage when he has his mouth guard in and when he has his mouth guard out. And I have written about, um, obviously the hottest game of his life. Not too long ago, I wrote about what he was doing, um, during this pandemic where he wasn't able to shoot for a long time because he didn't have access to a hoop. So the greatest shooter in the history of the planet had to build himself an outdoor basketball hoop um, just to get some shots up. And when I talked to him about this, I said, well, you know, sometimes that's hard. Like, you know, there are, you know, long manuals for this. Like you can't really hire someone to do it. How did, how did you do it? And it took him, uh, I think five hours to build a hoop in his driveway. He said he read the training, the the manual and just got overwhelmed immediately. So I've I've written a lot about him um, because I think that um, he is representative of something bigger than himself. And it was not a coincidence that he is the first chapter of this book, because um, I do think when people think of the hot hand, they think of him because there is really nothing more thrilling in sports than to watch Steph Curry get hot. When you call him, like, what does he say? I mean, like, Hey, this is Ben. Hey, Steph. I, like, I don't. Like, I don't quite do that. There, there are a bunch of layers there, to get. There are layers. There. Yeah. Yes. Because I'm uh, thinking. I'm thinking about the Howard Stern show. Where, uh, Howard says, you know, what do you do when Woody Allen calls you? And I'm. He's like Alex. Like, look, there are people. Woody doesn't call like my my housekeeper. Is Alex there? <laughs> you know. Yeah. So this, there are layers. So you talk about um, William Shakespeare. This is one of the most interesting parts of the book to me. That where you you kind of put him in conversation with Rob Reiner as these figures that like, I mean, it's weird. It's the hot hand. I mean, I think a lot of um, people that study kinetics and physiology would get it in, in something like basketball or golf or something, right. Where there's muscle memory, there's neurological um, there's kind of, you know, synapses that are formed through doing things again. I I mean, but out of sports, I mean, things that are intellectual, I mean, it's, it's kind of the same principle or I mean, it's just you, you, you hit the groove and the synapses are firing or like, because so I, I, I don't think we really know what's going on neurologically. And that's one of the great mysteries of the hot hand. Like I, I would love to be able to strap some wires to our brains and figure out which, um, you know, which electrons are firing and, and, and what we know um, neurologically about what's happening when we get hot. I think we know much more about um, what's happening with external circumstances and then how we respond to those. So we do get more confident, right? Like Steph Curry takes longer and crazier and riskier shots when he feels like he is hot, but it's not just Steph Curry and it's not just basketball. And that's really what interested me so much about 
this book. This is really about human behavior and about how we make decisions. And when we are hot, there are resources available to us that um, are not there usually. And if we take advantage, they can elevate our career. And what we learned um, through Steph Curry and through Shakespeare and through Rob Reiner is that they can actually kind of change our lives. So uh, you have had a hot hand experience in your JV high school days. Yes, it did not change my life. Well, I mean, it, it, you know, you went to Duke and Met. But not, but not because I, I I happened to get hot in one quarter of one game in my sophomore <laughs> year of high school. So are you like when you're writing about this stuff and researching it? Are you thinking like, all right, I get the hot hand, I get the hand. I, I write three Steph Curry articles. I do I do three Wall Street Journal. Like I, I'll get the hot hand. I mean, how much does this like? Are you a victim of your own success on this stuff? Where you're kind of like looking at like the hot hand phenomena and thinking, oh my gosh, if I could just replicate this in my own life. I'd be, you know, uh, you know, in, in this. Well, it's a very tempting thought. I mean, I, I, um, you know, one of the things about the hot hand that's really frustrating is that there doesn't seem to be a way to predict it. We can't make it happen and we don't know when it's going to happen. In fact, I asked Steph Curry about this. I wanted to know, do you know when you are about to get hot? You're the best shooter ever. Like there's never been a better basketball shooter in the history of the sport. Uh, and yet what he said is that he doesn't know when it's going to happen or where or how or why it's going to happen. But once it does happen, you have to embrace it. And so that's how I think about it now. There's no way to put myself in the zone. I wish there were. I would do it all the time. But I'm always on the lookout for that now. And so when I feel circumstance breaking my way and um, you know, the very few times that I've been hot in my day job at the Wall Street Journal, um, I try to remind myself that those are really the times um, to work really hard and uh, and ju- to just um, to double down on things that I am doing. Because the one thing that we know about the hot hand is that it doesn't last forever. It's going to run out. And we all try to bottle that magical feeling for as long as we can. So there are, you know, certain days and and maybe even certain weeks when I'm on a roll and people are calling me back and words are pouring out of me. And I try to remind myself, like, this is really the time to write stories that I want to write and maybe wouldn't have the chance to do otherwise. Because when this ends, I'm going to go back to feeling terrible about myself as a writer again. And I would like to make this last for as long as possible. It's interesting when you say that. I, there's a... a Christian psychiatrist, I really, he's in blessed memory, died in the early 80s, but he wrote this book called Clinical Theology. His name is Frank Lake. And he spends like basically 1,300 pages trying to introduce pastors and rabbis to psychiatry and psychiatrists to spirituality. But he says something in the beginning that has stuck with me. Like he said, if you look at yourself as a container, then inevitably when you're insecure and you're freaking out, you go to the cupboard and the cupboard looks bare. But he says, if you look at yourself not as a container, but a channel like, uh, for divine creative energy, he's like, then the virtue is to let the bottom get knocked out of your humanity because it ruins you as a bucket, but opens you up as a channel, right? Like, and so it, it sounds like part of what you're saying is like this, you can't contain it. You can't get electricity in a bottle. You can't, it, it basically, you just, you, you, if you're graced with these moments... It seems like from your advice, your perspective, studying all this stuff is like you have to just be open and don't try to control or contain it. Just go with the flow. Go with the energy. 
I think that's right. And I think it's like, it's, it's what Steph Curry did on the basketball court. Like you can't put yourself into that position. You can work really hard and you can try to control as much as you can control. But once it does happen, you have to just try to embrace it. And so for Steph Curry, embracing it means taking more shots, right? And, and taking shots from longer, right? Taking crazier shots and, and riskier shots and just doing things that he you took might shots, not have. He took shots almost from the half. I mean, like you talk about like uh, basically from ha- almost half court. And yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and that has changed basketball as we know it, right? Not just for Steph Curry and not just for the Warriors, but for basketball players around the world. The game looks different now than it did seven or eight years ago. And that has a lot to do with the audacity of Steph Curry. Does this, does your work shape your politics at all in the sense of like, you think about like creative destruction and things around, you know, capitalism and the market and things like this, where you, 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 you know, it seems like, you know, there, we, we have these complex arguments about government and market stuff and other things like, does it, I mean, how do you think about like, especially in times of COVID-19, like, you know, how does your work shape how you view moving forward in the, in these complex economic and political times? I mean, what does that look like for you? Uh, You know, I'm not really sure how to answer that question. Um, I don't really like to speak about um, politics, um, you know, publicly, but um, I do think that one of the things that I've learned um, writing this book and, and reading, you know, hundreds of psychological and economic papers about the hot hand is that um, our minds are sort of programmed to search for patterns. Um, and that is one of like the great lessons in this um, field of, of scientific literature about the hot hand. And it's why um, we believe in the hot hand, um, not just because it's intuitive, uh, but because there were always rewards for following our intuition. And so um, we seek order in chaos and, um, you know, we, 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 um, we see patterns where they may or may not exist and we invent causes to explain those patterns. And that's something that I try to keep in mind now. I mean, one of the, the nice things about working on this book is that you kind of see patterns everywhere. And um, I think part of the fun of thinking about the hot hand is trying to figure out which ones are real and which ones we could take advantage of and which ones may be real. And and probably there aren't many advantages um, to be had. Yeah. This is where I always think like, I, I remind myself whenever I, I get superstitious or something, just reread Hume on causality, right? The great philosopher, David Hume, where there's like, you know, Things are not, you know, like Hume is a kind of radical skeptic and and yet there, there's something to Hume on causality, right? Like we don't know what causes this and what causes that. And we are addicted to meaning making. And so as human beings, like we, we need to make meaning and, and, and do pattern prediction, like you talk about in the book, to get a sense of our lives. And then part of, I guess, what you're saying is like, you got to think about what are the healthy ways of meaning making and pattern prediction? And what are the, it's like the gambler's fallacy versus, uh, you talk about in your book, right? Versus the, uh, I forget the other term, but like the, the kind of like, uh, you know, the, the people that like basically make meaning in ways that are unhelpful. Um, and so you, I think, I guess what you're saying is we've got to try to make meaning in ways that like actually connect us to the real world and open up possibilities rather than preclude them or close doors. Well, I, I, I really think the crucial distinction here is the one of control, right? And so you spoke of the gambler's fallacy. Um, you know, I should probably explain what that is. The hot hand is when Steph Curry, you know, you walk into an NBA arena, you see Steph Curry make three shots in a row. Everybody thinks that he is going to make the fourth shot. That's the hot hand. But 
if you walk into a casino and you go to the roulette wheel and you see, um, you know, the ball land on red three times in a row, what research actually shows is most people will bet on black the next time. It's sort of the opposite of the hot hand. That's the gambler's fallacy. And the difference um, between betting on the streak to continue and betting on the streak to end is that um, distinction of control. When we feel that we are in control, when we have agency of our own lives and situations, we feel that we can get hot. When we recognize that we're at the mercy of chance, um, we adjust accordingly and um, we submit to the gambler's fallacy. And so um, I, I do think it's it's always worth thinking about do I have control of my actions going forward? And is it smart to believe in a hot hand? Or um, am I an investor? Am I a farmer? Am I a gambler? Should should I? Um, is, is it smarter for me to recognize that there is no such thing as the hot hand? Is my environment one that punishes a belief in the hot hand? Like if I believe in the hot hand and I behave as if I believe in the hot hand, is that going to backfire on me? Is it going to burn me. I mean, these are questions I think that um, exist in our daily lives and they're really fun to play around with. Yeah, I think it's interesting you say agency, right? That's part of the beauty of um, human life, right? Where you can, you actually can be um, the, I mean, you talk about where William Shakespeare decides, I don't want to go on the uh, uh, trip uh, north, uh, outside of London. I'm just going to sit and write for a little while. And that decision opens him up to actually some real connection to his own story. And he just bangs out like three of his best plays ever. Like, well, yeah, right. The point is that like, you would never have expected the circumstances that changed Shakespeare's career to be the plague year. And yet it was. And, and the plague was this constant force that really shaped his life. Right. And like, that is circumstance that, you know, no one would have ever expected. And the point of this is that, you know, sometimes um, the circumstances like your bus gets pulled over on the way to Madison Square Garden. And um, sometimes the circumstance is the plague. And, um, you know, the, the, it's, it's, it's just another, um, you know, reminder that you really never know when the hot hand is going to strike. And so the people who have actually studied this, there's a statistical physicist at Northwestern named Dashin Wang, um, who studies the science of streaks. And what he has found is that our creative hits tend to be clustered and our best work comes in bunches. And so he looked at movie directors and he looked at artists and he looked at scientists and he tried to put these um, objective numbers to these subjective tastes. He tried to basically quantify this. So for, uh, for movie directors, it was IMDb ratings. And for artists, it was auction prices. And scientists, it was Google Scholar citations. So these are not perfect metrics, but they're about the best that we have to quantify the quality of someone's work. And what he found is that if he knows what your best work is, he probably knows where your second and third best work is because they're right around each other. We have these hot hand periods in our careers. And they tend to define our careers. They are what we remember. And they're also what other people remember about us. And you know, you never really know if your hot hand period has passed or if it's on the horizon, like what you think of as your hot hand period when you're 25 might not be what it is when you are 50 or when you're 75, right? And so if you ask Dash and Wang, what is his advice? Like, what would you tell someone if they ask, how do I know if my hot hand period has passed? He will say that it doesn't matter. The answer is the same. You have to just keep going. And um, I think that's what we learn from the example of Shakespeare and the example of Steph Curry is like, you just got to keep going. Like your bus might get pulled over, but that might be the night that you get hot. And um, it might be a plague year, but 
that is fundamentally changing something about society that maybe you could take advantage of. I mean, it seems like your book ultimately comes from a place of human compassion and desire for like to understand the human condition. I, I think about like, was this book hatched kind of from your own sense of like, I'm going to dry spell and I want the hot hand back? Or was it, or was it hatched from like, I see some people that want the hot hand and they don't have it. I mean, it, like, Oh no, it was not, it was not about that. I mean, that, I feel like that's sort of like a guru behavior and that is not what I am at all. I mean, that the, there, there were really two reasons I wrote this book. The first is that, you know, that, that very um, strange event in high school stuck with me for a long time. And I wanted to understand that a little bit better. But the second was that, why did, that, a, stick, why did that stick with you? Like, I mean, Oh, because I think that's what happens with the hot hand. You feel like you are transcending yourself. Like you're very briefly a superhuman version of yourself. And there's a reason we remember the hot hand when it strikes is because, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something you, you feel like you are floating. It's like an out of body experience. Um, but the real reason I wrote this book is because I'm a reporter, right? And, um, what I've learned in 10 years at the Wall Street Journal writing stories is that what makes a good story is tension right? Tension is what we're always looking for. And I just couldn't believe how much tension there was in this fight over a single idea. The, the hot hand is this phenomenon that we all thought to be true, only to be told that it wasn't, only to realize that maybe it actually was. And it was a narrative in which the characters were Nobel Prize winners and NBA superstars. All of this, as a writer, as a reporter, was just really irresistible to me. When you walk into the Wall Street Journal, right? Like, I feel like for a lot of my listeners, the Wall Street Journal is just a logo. What's it look like when you walk in? Of course, you're not walking in now because you know this is this is the ultimate irony of ironies on Fox News right now. They're saying we got to open up, open up, open up, and then Fox says we're closed till September. <laughs> so every every office is kind of closed. But like when you were working, what's it like to walk into the office? I mean, is it, I mean, how, how do you describe being a reporter? Is it like newsroom? Is it like, I mean, it, it seems like an interesting place to work in, in, in that you've got access to a lot of the smartest people and interesting people in the world and you're the capital of the world. Like, what's that like every day? Uh, it's intimidating and inspiring. And, you know, really one of the greatest things about being a journalist is that you have an excuse to call basically anybody you want and ask them questions, right? It's not weird, right? That's what uh, kind of what the job is. Um, and so, uh, it's, it's, it's really great, um, to be around people who are so good at their jobs in so many different ways. Like we have people who are on the phone all day, you know, whispering to sources and getting information out of them. Um, we have, um, you know, some of the great stylists, people who can just, you know, write a funnier sentence in like a second than you could write in your entire life. Um, there are people who have been doing this job for a very long time and are the best at what they do. Um, and so that's just like a complete, um, you know, delight to be around. Stylist, so is it intimidating when you write? Because you're a great writer. I mean, your book is. I mean, the prose is fantastic. I mean, you. There's a sentence I I remember reading where you use the word delicious, and I was like, wow, <laughs> I would have never used the word delicious in a sentence like that. So when you go to the stylist or something, is it is it hard? Like, do you? Is it like you know, kind of? Oh my gosh, I'm going to the dentist or something, or where? Okay, I, I got to get punched. This thing needs to be punched up and stylized. Is that is that an anxiety provoking experience? No, I mean it's a real. Um, it's like a privilege to be edited, 
like you want smart people going over your work and and punching it up and and making it better and um and you want to give um you want to give people something to read that they haven't read before that's really like the the founding philosophy of the Wall Street Journal's sports section like we've only existed for about 10 years and we had to really think about what is it uh, that we want to cover like how does the Wall Street Journal cover sports how should we cover sports. And um, I think if you um, look at our page in the newspaper or online every day, we just try to give you something you haven't read before. So sometimes that means breaking news, right? Like literally uncovering new information uh, with whether it's through investigations or getting someone on the phone who doesn't like to talk. Um, Sometimes it means just, you know, framing an idea in a different way and taking a huge story and making you think about it in a new light. Sometimes it means like, you know, quantifying something and creating data. Sometimes it means being really funny. I mean, we're, we, you, you just want to come to us and, and be sort of surprised and delighted. That's one of the tricks that Mark Turmel used in NBA Jam. He wants surprise and delight around every corner. And that's sort of why, um, you know, the ball turns into a fireball when you get hot is because it's surprising and it's delightful. And I think the best stories and um, the best newspapers and, and media outlets tend to be surprising and delightful. Does this like kill you as a sports writer because there aren't sports anymore? I mean, they're like, I mean, are is it? Are you kind of like pulling your hair out in the sense of like, okay, uh, a, a buddy of mine who's one of the smartest guys I've ever met said to me, "I'm I'm pretty pessimistic with the future of the country because if the NBA can't make the model work, no one can make the model work, right?" Like, I mean, are you kind of like pulling your hair out, thinking like, are there going to be sports? Uh, no, not really. I mean, th- this this two months without sports, there's still a lot of sports news. I mean, my job is not tied to sports games. It's about sports news. And um, there's a lot of that. And people are really anxious to find out what's going on. And people are getting creative. And there's lots of stuff to write. I mean, th- one of the problems with sports is that um, you can't work from home and play sports. Like, you can't play NBA games on Slack. And so, um, you know, th- they're really um, – it's, it's going to be – tricky for professional sports to come back with or without fans. I mean, it's going to be without fans at first and for a long time, but um, this is the greatest crisis facing professional sports probably ever, right? Given the amount of money um, that is in this industry right now and how much money is being lost every day. And, you know, there are no games, but like, that's a very newsy event. And and our job um, is not to just cover the results of games. It's really to cover news. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, as a New Yorker, also, like, do you, are you, I mean, you're in the front lines of, um, you know, you, you're in, in arguably the greatest city in the world, and yet you're kind of taking the suffering for the country right now. I mean, this is, I mean, you're in ground zero of, of the suffering. I mean, day to day, are you like, what's it like as a New Yorker right now? I mean, do you have, you have hope? Are you, are you up? Are you down? You know, are you praying for the hot hand? <laughs> what's it like to be a New Yorker right now? Oh, it's just odd um, because, you know, the the great thing about living in New York is just the energy in the city and that's sort of been zapped. Um, you go outside and you kind of want to go back inside right away. Um, you know, the streets are, are empty and, um, you know, the grocery stores are anxious and Broadway is shut down. You can't go out to eat in like the greatest restaurants that we have. And, um, you know, no one wants to be on the subway if they can avoid it. And offices are, I mean, it's, it's, it's very strange and it's eerie. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to think about that stuff. I, I prefer not to think about it. Like if you think too far into the future about what this actually means, you can't really get anything done 
day to day. And so um, we're sort of hunkered down in an apartment for, I don't know, more than two months now, like, you know, eight or nine weeks. And it's very odd. Um, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's unlike anything that the city has ever faced before. I have a friend from Pittsburgh who is an HVAC guy and he, he ran a very successful business. And he said his favorite words in a weather, whether it was cold or hot, his favorite words in the broadcast were no end in sight. Because <laughs> that's when people like sign up like for heat or air conditioning and, and, or, or to get it fixed. I mean, this is, I mean, this is the crazy thing, right? Because there is not an end in sight. I mean, it, it, who knows? I mean, like, who knows? I mean, when the new normal is, I mean, it's, it, it, even a new normal is a thing we're looking forward to, right? Because I mean, New York City could be shut down till September or something, right? I mean, right. Is- There's just a lot of uncertainty, and human beings do not operate well in uncertainty. Um, that's one of the things that the psychologists in this book um, have spent their whole lives studying: is decision making under uncertainty and how we make decisions. So, what would you say to people? from your research, like how, what would you say to them about making decisions right now? Like, because people are making decisions all across the country right now and people are freaking out and their mental health is, you know, uh, strained. And so what would you say? Um, that's a good question. Um, it's, it's, you know, I, I, I would say that I am a reporter and I'm not some sort of guru and I don't really know anything more than what other people know. I mean, what I do know, um, from reading this research is that it's like really important to, to, um, to think about what is in your control and what's not. I mean, that's sort of one of the through lines of, um, all of this research about the hot hand. And um, it's something that, you know, you can try to apply to your own life. But listen, it's really hard. I mean, these are very strange times. And um, I think people should just sort of um, hold on to whatever semblance of normalcy they can find. I mean, clearly, some people will um, get hot during this time, it's going to, um, you know, create some great works of art or literature. Um, I don't know if we'll be able to experience that for a long time. But society is changing. And I I don't exactly know what the future holds. It turns out, um, you know, reading 35 years worth of studies about the hot hand does not tell you all that much about what happens in a pandemic, believe it or not. Well, that's uh, <laughs> that's that's not unbelievable. Uh, so you live with you're married to Stephanie Butnick, um, who's a podcaster. Uh, I, I think I was going to say arguably, but the thing I hate about arguably is you could say arguably anything. Like I could argue I'm the best looking guy in the. It, it's arguable that I'm the best looking guy in the Northeast. Um, that's inarguable. Yeah. It, yeah. Exactly. But, you know, so you guys are both, I mean, she hosts, co-hosts one of the best or the best Jewish podcasts. You know, arguably. Arguably. I'd say it's the best. Uh, and you're at the Wall Street Journal. I mean, is this, I'm just thinking existentially, like you're, you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but like, you know, there's no subways. There's no kind of, you guys are both like beat kind of people, right? I mean, you kind of, you you, you get your energy through connecting with people in the world, uh, not just in your workplaces, but like in, you know, through the work. And now you guys are hunkered down. I mean, is this like, are you guys like just, is? It, I mean, I, that strikes me as existentially tortured. Is it? Or, 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 or I mean, how, how, like, 
How bad is it? Well, we have a cat, so it's okay. You know, it's uh, oh boy, we, you we have draw, a cat. <laughs> we draw energy off something else. No, it's it's difficult. I mean, um, you know, people being apart is is hard. I mean, one one interesting thing that I found in the work itself is that um, in some ways it's actually easier to get people on the phone than it's ever been because you know that they're just sitting around in their houses with nothing else to do, um, and there's a great demand for. The stuff that both of us do, thankfully. I mean, people want to um, listen to podcasts and they want to read um, not only news stories, but feature stories, right? They want to be entertained and they want to be informed. And um, that, um, you know, we've sort of been very busy with work. I mean, it would be nice if our apartment were a little bit bigger. It's very small. It's a very small place to be hunkered down for eight or nine weeks, especially when there's a very tiny creature making that apartment um, a lot smaller, um, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of an exhilarating time too. And so, um, we're just doing whatever we can to remain sane. And, um, you know, we watch Mad Men every night, so that's helped too. What's been exhilarating other than Mad Men? I mean, it's, it's the greatest story of a century, right? If, if you're, if you work for a newspaper, um, there are, it's just the entire world is changing. It's, it's what we write about. And so, um, there's an enormous demand for news and, um, and, and for stories. And, um, you know, the whole world has been turned upside down overnight and there are stories anywhere you look. And you're a storyteller that's, you know, telling them every day. Um, Ben, thanks for telling the story of the hot hand and also just spending time with me talking about it. And I'm, um, my thoughts and prayers are with you guys in New York city. Cause that is, you're on the front lines of reality and and the covid virus and thanks for your work um just telling stories and uh, making helping us all make meaning and track patterns and things like that i really appreciate you spending some time with me thank you it was inarguably a pleasure (laughs) thanks for listening to this episode of give and take if you like what you've heard here please do a few things for me go share about this episode in itunes write a review give it a rating Share the love and goodness or go on social media, share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.